it is great to have Molly Henricks with us here today for the Defining Us podcast. Molly is with the San Mateo County Office of Education. And Molly, thanks for joining us. We appreciate you being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. So let's jump right in, Molly. I want to get just first a little background on you. As you know, because you're familiar with Defining Us, we are really interested in talking to educators that are on the front lines of social justice issues. We believe that schools now have become the platform where many of the strategies, practices, healing, and hope around social justice issues is taking place. And so what is your role in San Mateo? And tell us a little bit about how you ended up in the role you're in. Yeah, thank you. So I am the coordinator of school safety and risk prevention. However, during the pandemic, my role shifted a little bit because school safety and risk prevention really meant emergency preparedness and student threat assessment. And during the pandemic at home learning, we no longer had threats to schools and we no longer really needed to do emergency preparedness. So during that time, we wrote a grant and was awarded a grant for $6 million, which was from the Mental Health School Services Act in the state of California. And we needed somebody to run that. And so I was fortunate enough to be able to, to take that on. So although my, my title is under school safety, I'm really kind of more of a mental health coordinator for the County Office of Ed here in San Mateo. My background is not in education, but I somehow ended up here. I'm actually a licensed marriage and family therapist. And I came by way of kind of the typical path of a, a marriage and family therapist where working for nonprofits, collecting my hours towards licensure always working with youth, working with what we called at that time at-risk youth, now at-promise youth, for a wide variety of different types of nonprofits. I did do some crisis counseling at a school level and then found my way to the County of San Mateo for Behavioral Health and Recovery Services, which really introduced me to the County Office of Ed because we worked on some projects together. And through the work I did with the County Office of Ed while I was with uh, San Mateo County Behavioral Health, it really woke me up to the impact I could have by working with the County Office of Ed and the impact I could have on 96,000 students in San Mateo County. And that was where I wanted to go. And so when the position became available here, I jumped on it and it's, it's been great since, even with the different ups and downs in the last two years. You know, it's been a rough time over the last two years and certainly a transformational time. You talked about security, threat assessment, risk. Um, What we're seeing across the country right now with a lot of our districts is a lot of instability, a lot of violence, a lot of concerns around violence as kids come back to school. Talk to us a little bit about whether or not that's what you guys are seeing or dealing with or an intensity around it and why you think that's happening. What, what's happening in the country right now? If you could give us an overview of that, that'd be really helpful, I think. I mean, I think it's important to note that this was happening prior to the pandemic. We had a very, I want to say dysregulated country. Everybody was feeling very unease and upset at what was happening. We had a lot of racial tension in our, a huge amount of racial tension in our country. We still do. And it wasn't like the pandemic created this. 
we just went into a shelter in place and weren't able to socialize with each other. So the violence decreased in that sense, as far as at a school site level. What we're seeing here in San Mateo with students returning back to in-person learning is that everything that transpired prior to the pandemic has been impounded by students being isolated, students being cut off from their supports and their resources. Oftentimes school is the safe place for students. So they've spent 18 months in a place that wasn't safe for them, which was at home or in their community. And then coming back and needing to learn to re-socialize has been really difficult. Uh, We have seen an uptick in threats to schools and violence and threatening behavior, particularly after what happened in Michigan. And that's typical. We always see that. We always see it this time of year, too, with, with it being finals and students being kind of at the end of their semester and ready for winter break. And then I think on top of that, with the uncertainty of the new strands, and um, wondering what's going to happen. And are we going to go back into a lockdown situation where we're again isolated? And I think students are, are acting out in appropriate ways, but for them, it's very appropriate because they're completely dysregulated. And so I'm thankful that we have a very good system in place to address student threats to schools. We address it in a very uh, restorative way. And, you know, it's, it's not just identify the student and expel them. It's identify the student, look to see what is happening, um, what has happened to them, and why they're behaving the way they're behaving, and what supports we could put into place to not only help them, but then also keep the schools safe. You know, I'm sort of wading into the shallow end here, Molly, but this is such an important and serious topic. And I think that it often gets mischaracterized in media. Um, And I also think that people don't really understand what you mean when you say school is a safe space. I want to explore that for a minute. I was listening to, to someone the other day, an educator who I have great respect for out of New York, and he's a former police officer. And he said, what you have to understand is that hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. And they do it both emotionally and physically. And if you take that into a child level, sometimes they can't even articulate why they're hurting or what is going on with them, or why their actions are what they are. Yeah. So I think if you could expand a little bit on how schools really do become this place where we can heal through restoration and become a place of safety emotionally, physically, And that often that path is not available to so many children. And if you're not a person who lives that world, you don't think about how many children need that space. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, I think it's important to first just note the amount of time students spend at school. So you're looking at about 40 hours a week, which is what we spend typically at work. I mean, hopefully it's always spend at work, but not necessarily. (laughs) <laughs> especially in know education that. right now. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and even now, so students get breakfast. So looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you've got school provides food across the country. And right now, you know, we're providing food regardless of income to students. So students can get breakfast and they can get lunch and they can get snacks and takeaway. So basically dinner as well to take home from school. So they're fundamental needs are being met in that capacity. And then you add 
the adults that work on a school campus, typically you're looking at people who want to be there, especially right now, right? If you don't want to be in education, you're not in education anymore. You've left. So there are adults that want to be there. There are adults that want to be there because they love children and they want to help kids. And so you've got these caring, loving adults that are really going to show up for the students no matter what and provide love and support. And we know from tons of research that a a young person that has one person in their life that shows up for them and loves them no matter what is the best preventative factor for every risk factor out there. So it's essential. And that's where schools become this essential place. We provide food, we provide love and support. We also provide a way to take your mind off of the things that are happening at home because we have to teach you how to learn and we have to teach you things. So you're going away from thinking about what's waiting for you outside of school and paying attention to what's really in front of you, right? So that might be math, that might be um, reading or writing. You then also have your social network. All of your friends are there. And even if you don't quite know how to interact with your friends yet from coming back from the pandemic and at home learning, You still have people your own age that have similarities like you. They connect with you in a way that your parents can't connect with you. I have, you know, twin boys, eight years old, and I can't provide them what their eight-year-old buddies provide them. I don't actually care that much about Pokemon, but their friends do. So that's, you know, that's important to them right now. Um, That's helping regulate them. And then... I think the other part of that is that, you know, in a school space during this pandemic, we have loaded up school with extra resources. If you didn't have it before, you hopefully have it now where you've got mental health clinicians on school campus. So you no longer have to leave school and go to the community mental health provider down the street or across town or across the city to access mental health supports. They're at your school level. They're, they're in the classroom. You've got tier one interventions being done with social emotional learning to help students kind of understand who they are, help students understand how to interact with one another and how to be empathic. You have tier two for those students that might be going through, you know, parents are going through a divorce, students who are newcomers, right, and don't speak English uh, yet and are learning the language and need that extra support and camaraderie with others that are going through what they're going through. And we provide that at the school level. And then you have the tier three supports, which is, you know, might be grief counseling because you've lost a parent during the pandemic or you lost a family member or, you know, some deep trauma work because you have a school-based counseling center on your school campus. So all of those go into a school site and provide the students with an array of supports that we used to not get. When I was in school, we didn't have this. We didn't have that type of opportunity to be able to connect with outside resources at a school site. So school isn't just reading, writing, and arithmetic anymore. It really has become this community center that provides so much more than just learning. And that's why it's an essential workplace. It's an essential uh, entity and an essential function. I just want you to speak to how important this socialization process is, this school process is for children who have come from more marginalized situations, who don't necessarily have access to 
kids that can really net relate to them to people that are coming in from different races. Tell me a little bit about where the social justice issues play in all of this, because a lot of people are saying, why are we dealing with social justice issues in schools? Why are we even talking about it? Well, I think it's important. I mean, we're dealing with social justice issues in schools because there's a wide variety of students at schools. We don't, I mean, <laughs> unless you've got an all white upper middle class school, which exists and being in San Mateo County, we definitely have our large pockets of extreme privilege, socioeconomically and, and racially. And a, a nice diverse school is going to allow students to really understand what the world is like, right? We don't, our world is not one layer. And so schools can't be this one layer. And so in order to, to prepare students for the real world, so to speak, we need to talk about what actually happens outside of the walls of a school, because it happens inside of the walls too. I remember you know, watching my own kids go to school and not be the majority uh, white upper middle class kids. And they also happen to be blonde hair, blue eyed. So they're extremely privileged and they're aware of that. And so am I. But what was great about them walking into a school setting was that they got to be introduced to different cultures. So they got to learn about different cultures, learn about different students, learn about their different families and what they identify as and what they experienced so that they could then develop a sense of empathy for others. You can't develop that sense of empathy if you don't understand what somebody else is going through. And if we don't have a sense of empathy, we're not going to be able to function as a society worldwide. We're, we're humans, we need to be able to connect with one another, we need to be able to relate to one another and have that sense of empathy. And so providing social justice learning in schools, providing a, a platform to be able to talk about that really does just help create decent human beings. And that's what we want. We want to raise decent human beings. And so from an education lens, providing history on LGBTQ folks, providing history on you know disabilities, all of everything that's part of the FAIR Act, it's important that we learn about that in a school setting and teach about that because that's what reality is. We can't ignore what actual reality is. And in a changing world, Molly, especially you as a therapist, as a licensed, you know, marriage and family therapist, in a changing world, these are really identity issues to a large degree that are going on with kids at a time when their identity is forming. Absolutely. And so when your identity is forming and you're moving through this as a teenager or as an adolescent, you know school in that context of a safe place. We're in a changing world that parent, a, a generation before me doesn't really get. At least they're not living it the same way. You know, just like we didn't live technology right. the same way, right? So the world is transforming, the world is moving, the world is changing, and school as a safe place, while kids are forming their identity, seems that they need to be able to talk about these issues openly, to have trust from the community or to be working in concert with the community to address some of these issues because I can go to school perhaps and work some of these things out for myself as I go into sort of a world that my parents are not that familiar with. And that can save me emotionally or it can help me become my full potential. Is that 
correct? Absolutely. I and and you mentioned, you know, teenagers and adolescents, and I, I chuckle a little bit because one of the things that I am amazed by is the identity formation of students at the elementary level and students really understanding who they are and who they want to become so much earlier than even my generation. And, you know, I, I, I was an 80s child. So I didn't form my identity or understand who I was as part of the LGBTQ community until high school. And now I'm working with students who, and schools that are saying, I have a second grader who has come out. And I'm amazed by this. And how I look at why that is, is not that, you know, there's been a huge shift in, in humans, but there's been a huge shift in the atmosphere and the surroundings and the school that has provided this safe space for somebody to even talk about that. I look back in my own identity and I know that I, you know, I could have easily come out probably in second grade if I look back at, at my interactions and my experiences, but I didn't have the language for it and I didn't have the understanding or the support around it because it wasn't something that was talked about. And had it been something that was talked about, I feel like I could have probably prevented some uncomfortable and some traumatizing things from happening. And I think that that's the important part is that if we can be preventative at a school level or a school site by providing that safe space and telling children and students that they're loved no matter what, and, you know, and that they can truly explore their identity, they can come out the other side being stronger for it. And I look at our high school leaders right now, our high school students who are truly leaders and what they're producing. And I see that it's because we provided a space for them to be their authentic self without crushing it or without telling them, no, 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 you have to do it this way because everybody else is doing it this way, that they've become better leaders for it. And then that's gonna translate into the job market. That's gonna translate into the, the adult world in 10 years, we're going to have a ton of leaders in society that are leading with authenticity, empathy, and the construct of inclusion. And we won't have to teach them how to do that because they're going to teach us. How are you dealing with the fear, Molly, from parents? It's interesting because, you know, we've got a ton of parents who are very pro backing their child in whatever their child's identity is with, you know, keeping the schools on their toes, uh, which is good, right? Reminding mm -hmm. them about the ed code and reminding them about Title IX laws that, that protect LGBTQ youth. Um, and then we have parents who aren't quite there yet. And, you know, I think it's important that instead of blaming parents and yelling at them and, you know, saying that you're messing your child up by not supporting mm -hmm. them, it's looking at why aren't they supporting them? Where are they coming from? They're coming from a place of maybe their own fear of if my child is, comes out as LGBTQ or if my child is trans or non-binary, my child is going to have a harder life because that's what we were taught, right? My generation was the AIDS epidemic. My parents thought that if you're a gay male, you're gonna contract AIDS and die. And that was real. And that was that real fear. We've since dispelled that fear and we've moved past it. But a lot of us in, that are parenting now lived that. And so we are parenting through our lived experience. And what we need to do as a school, as a school district and the county office of ed is really help hold those parents 
with what they're feeling and help educate them on that things are different now and help educate them on the way that we have become aware of what trauma does to a youth and become aware of positive childhood experiences and how they can combat adverse childhood experiences so much that if we can have a positive interaction with a youth and say, it's okay to be you, that they can come out of their trauma and that they will be okay. So I really think that like parent education, family education around how to best support your youth and how to best support your LGBTQ child in the construct of your own culture is really important. You know, this is is such an important topic, Molly. We could talk about it for days because I really believe that the schools, it's what you said earlier. We're dealing with social justice issues because we're dealing with little kids. (laughs) You know, we're we're dealing with children. And we're children, we're dealing with children in a new generation that are growing into their identities and they're seeing the world in a different way. And really, you know. A friend who's, you know, on the international side in in LA said to me, you know, the little children will lead. I mean, the children Mm -hmm. do lead us. The children do lead us in every generation. Not that we don't put parameters around them and we don't provide them guidance, but they see the world differently because they're growing up in a different world. And I love what you said about allowing a parent to have their belief, but learning to deal with and look at the lens through which that belief has been developed and the lens through which they are seeing the world around them and how that impacts their child. This is deep, complex work for schools. It is. It is. And it's deep, complex work for families. And, you know, we can't have schools without families. And so we have to start paying attention to supporting the family unit um, rather than just the, the student. And so that's why I bring up so much of of wanting to help the parents understand this and, and help the parents understand themselves or the families rather understand themselves because we need them to help support their student. And we also need to be a school site that helps support the families. They're who we're educating as well. We can't educate the student without them. So it's a lot for schools to take on. And if you look at kind of the trajectory of education, First, it was come to school, learn and leave. And now it is really, like I said earlier, it really is about being a community center and providing resources for everybody that impacts the child's life and providing that space for everybody to feel safe. Because oftentimes, if you think about families, like I had a great experience coming out. I had a great experience at the last high school I was at. So I'm very fortunate, very lucky and privileged in that capacity. A lot of our families did not. And so it's also could be the school's, not responsibility, but I think that we won't move forward if we don't take on the responsibility and lens of supporting the family that might not have been supported in their own education. And so it's time to correct that now. And we can correct it through helping them as parents. And that's really what schools are doing. You're meeting kids where they are. You're not coming in and making judgments. This is bad. This is good. This is right. This is wrong. It's about meeting a child where they are in the third grade, fourth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade. Absolutely. And it's, I mean, again, going back to the the phrase, like decent human beings, we want to raise decent human beings. I don't care what your political affiliation is. I don't care if you're a red or blue state. 
that doesn't matter. It matters that if you're a decent human being, there's plenty of conservatives out there that are decent human beings. There's plenty of progressives out there that are not decent human beings. And what we want to do is to meet in the middle and make sure that the students that we're educating, the students that we're raising at these community centers, otherwise known as schools, really, is that we're raising empathic, decent human beings who are able to listen, reflect, and respond based on what they want and what their authenticity tells them that they are, their identity, and move forward within that space so they can live wholeheartedly, really, stealing, you know, Brene Brown quotes here and there, but like that they can be who they are and they don't have to feel like they can't, regardless of where they fall. Molly, we talked about a lot of this in race and poverty and in all different types of social justice issues, but I want to talk a little bit about the LGBTQ community and what happens to a child when they do not have the supports. What are the outcomes? What do we know now about not allowing people to explore? I mean, let's just talk about exploration in in a child's life. I mean, this is not A or B, you know, I mean, let's just talk about somebody who's on a path and wants to sort of figure this out. The data shows us that it's not good what happens. If LGBTQ students or students who I, who are wanting to explore their gender identity or their sexual orientation, their gender expression, if they're not able to explore who they are and feel supported in that, we end up with what we have, which is high suicide rates of LGBTQ youth or lesbian and gay youth, bisexual youth, five times more than their heterosexual counterparts. We have youth who, prior to turning 18 years old, transgender youth are 45 times more likely to attempt suicide than their cisgendered youth counterparts. So what that shows us is that it leads to death. Our job is to develop human beings and, and to educate them, we need them alive in order to do that. So it's not it, dramatic to say it, this is life not. or death. No, it's, it's not dramatic. It's, the data is out there. The Trevor Project does a great job at really highlighting what the impact of lack of social support, lack of uh, acceptance, and lack of positive mental health interactions can have on the LGBTQ community and the drastic outcomes that happen. You know, I think what teachers have learned and that maybe communities or or parents or communities that, you know, don't spend so much time around youth. I'll never forget Molly. Many, many years ago, I was working in a school and I was doing a talk and the principal got up and talked before me. He said to everybody, he said, I need you to listen to this talk because these people are working in social and emotional learning. That's what they deal with every day in schools. And he said, you know, I'm a parent of a third grader. He said, but the teachers in the, that are teachers of third graders, they know third graders so much better than me because they're with them every day. <laughs> and, they Absolutely. Every yeah. day. <laughs> and they see all different types of third graders. They see every kind of issue in the third grade population, right? So educators really have something to teach us as a society about children and about where they are developmentally and what's going on with them from an identity standpoint and what kind of supports we need to put around them educators really are on the leading edge because they're seeing all kinds of third graders. They're not just seeing the third grader you're seeing as your child. And those supports and that identity and that exploration, whatever kind it is, is not something that we need to fear. 
Right. And I, I mean, I live with two third graders and <laughs> I do not understand third graders. In full transparency, I, again, I'm not an educator in the traditional sense. I'm more of an adult educator in the sense that I, I'm going to talk about what I know that can help teachers in my line of work. But as far as teaching third grade, oh gosh, no, thank you. Never. Um, that's <laughs> something I, I, I would never want to do. And and I've even been told I probably wouldn't be good at it, which is fine because third grade teachers are good at it. And they are, I mean, that is, that is the time it's the, the, you know, second to fourth grade is really this great exploration period of, of students figuring out who they are and who they are. I'm not talking about like what alphabet letter am I, LGBTQ, QQI, like, it's not about that. It's about like, do I like Pokemon or not? Am I a soccer player or not? Do I like football? Like, am I a jock? Like, who am I? Where do I fit in with my friends? And, you know, am I the goofball? Or am I, a, you know, a leader? Like, who, who am I in schools? And that's really what this boils down to about talking about social justice, talking about inclusion in the classroom is really just providing a space that says, hey, we know that each and every one of you is very different. We know that each and every one of you comes from extremely different families too. And we want to make sure that we know about that. And SEL, like, yes, full disclosure, we're working with um, CWK uh, in some of our schools and we're working with other SEL providers in some of our schools. And actually my children go to a school that is working with a different provider. And that SEL provider has something that's called Spotlight Student of the Week. And it was an amazing opportunity for every student to be able to say, this is who I am. This is what's important in my family. This is what my likes are. This is my culture. They bring in pictures. They could bring in a food item from their culture. And it helps the students really understand who their classmates are. And that's, that's the fundamental kind of platform that the social justice you know, teaching around LGBTQ rights and teaching about LGBTQ history and social justice and other, you know, uh, Latino American history, Asian American history, African American history, all of that, that is the social justice lens is like, let's learn about who's in our classroom so we can help support them and love them because they're our neighbors and they're our classmates. And if we don't know who they are and don't, you know, have an idea about their culture, we can't connect with them. I think that that's the real important part that like third grade teachers could teach us is that providing that space to just say, hey, what's your favorite kind of food? What kind of food does your family cook for the holidays? What kind of holidays do you celebrate? Do you celebrate holidays? Some families don't celebrate holidays. So being able to understand that is what teachers have the capacity to do. Imagine if we did that in the workplace. If every if every week we right. came into the workplace <laughs> and we had a spotlight employee of the week where you got to learn about that employee that like might sit in the cube next to you who, you know, maybe eats with their mouth open and bugs you because of that, but then you get to know them a little bit better and you're like, "Oh, I actually connect with them on these levels because now I know who they are." We would feel so much more interconnected at work and in our community, because we would have some common experiences and some common connections with the people around us, but we don't take that time. And that's where schools and education really has put effort into taking the time to get to know the students and get to know where they're from and where they want to go. So schools can be that community. 
that's really important to have and that students really need, children really need. And so we want to inspire those leaders. We want to lift up those, those youth that are willing to give their voice because they're the ones that are going to help the youth who don't have their voice yet. They're the ones that are going to pull those youth out of, of the darkness that they're in and save them and help them become the leaders they want to be. Well, and I think I want to just end with this, Molly, because you've been a great guest, but also, yes, I mean, we're not, it's not all or nothing. We're not saying that adults don't bring wisdom to the table and life experience to the table, but we have a better chance of really connecting with them and building relationships with them when we can support what they see that we don't see and bring our experience to the table. Yeah, absolutely. And the combination of the two with our life experience and our education and then their experience and living in it in the moment, the combination can be extremely powerful. And that's where we need to come together. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. It's um, great to talk to you. Great to be with you today. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much.